0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: You can now support Ghost Maps on Patreon and buy our official merchandise on Redbubble. Simply look for We Are Huntu or click the links in the description. Ghost Maps. Mark, an assistant director for close to 15 years, laughs when I ask him if his job is as glamorous as people seem to think it is. Maybe in Hollywood, he snorts derisively. But come on, this is Singapore. I think that coffee shop uncle over there has a more glam job than me. The coffee shop in question, in which we're sitting, is in Tuapaiot, just across the street from Mark's flat. He's on his fourth cigarette since we got here, and he hasn't even ordered his drink yet. I call the aforementioned uncle over and order a kopi. Mark orders a bottle of beer for himself. It's only four in the afternoon. One Carlsberg, he tells the clearly impatient elderly man in a white singlet, brown shorts and flimsy flip-flops. No, wait, Uncle. Sorry, uh, Tiger. After all, we're telling Singaporean ghost stories today. I chuckle and nod as I join Mark for a smoke. His fifth and my first in quite some time. It's not so much that I'm craving a cigarette. However, I suspect that having one with him will make him more comfortable about sharing his experiences. All that bravado anyone can see is just his way of dealing with nerves. He goes on and on at first, speaking in broad strokes about some of his encounters from all around Singapore, of which there were many one or two sounded somewhat genuine. Most seem a little exaggerated. But then, he brushes over something about filming in Changi a little too casually. So I ask him about that and I can see his bravado fall away. Just for a second. one he asks, wincing a little. I nod Encouragingly, he lets out just the slightest sigh, and then fills half his mug with ice and the rest with tiger beer. Taking a swig of liquid courage, he puts up his front once more. Okela, okay he says, raising his voice a little for dramatic effect. Let me tell you about that one. As he lights his sixth cigarette, I switch on my recorder and ask him to start from the beginning it was June 2015 Mark was working on a shoot for a TV pilot it was supposed to be for some cheesy horror series he tells me like what was that show called Uh, incredible tales yeah that's it like incredible tales but uh, just way worse the 20-person crew was scheduled to meet at the Changi Village Hawker Center at around 6 that evening. But Mark and a couple of the others arrived earlier and decided to have a quick bite and a drink at a pub called Charlie's Corner. Among this group was the shoots bus driver, a genial man in his 60s named Hong. Hong, it seemed, had been ferrying production crews around the area for years he knew Changi better than most he claimed and told them that he'd make sure everyone was alright that evening even though Mark had never done a shoot in Changi before like a lot of Singaporeans he was well aware of this area's reputation for the supernatural so despite the old man's reassuring tone, he was still more than just a little anxious. Mark kept those concerns to himself though, partly because his ego wouldn't allow him to look scared in front of the younger crew members. But also because he was worried that voicing those anxieties might just make them real. Once everyone had showed up, the crew slowly made their way to a secluded area closer to the more infamous parts of Changi. We didn't want to film in places like the old hospital. It just wasn't worth the risk, he tells me. But we still needed somewhere with the right atmosphere. You know? They reached their destination at around 7pm. A long-abandoned two-storey bungalow in a poorly lit, slightly more forested area, away from the lively hustle and bustle of a typical Changi village evening. As the crew alighted and unloaded their equipment, a pair of young production assistants strolled over to a nearby bin just a couple of metres from the bungalow itself and lit their cigarettes. Hong, genial as always, waved the PAs back towards the bus no smoke there he said the PAs mockingly waved back to him and continued smoking anyway until one of the actors a guy around their age named Suresh stepped in and yelled at them Mark was busy unloading some equipment but caught snippets of what the actor had said don't play around this area you don't know what's watching Mark smiled to himself, happy that someone had put them in their place. The PAs, however, were clearly not happy, but stepped away from the bin nonetheless. The unloading and prep continued, but as was usually the case with most shoots, delays, mishaps and bad luck meant that even as it closed in on 10pm, things were still progressing slowly. To make better use of their time, the director asked Mark and one of the cameramen, a guy in his 20s named Leslie, to get some establishing shots from around the bungalow, while he briefed Suresh and a couple of the other actors on the script. The task proved unnervingly easy for Mark and Leslie. Leslie? The bungalow's exterior looked like it had been neglected for at least a decade. Grass grew wildly all around. Its walls were green with moss, and the area just generally gave off a foreboding vibe. While they were around the back, Mark noticed a small black cat had started following them. Not a fan of animals, he tried to shoo it away but the cat wouldn't be deterred. Eventually, Leslie and Mark made their way into the bungalow itself, which somehow seemed even more dilapidated than the exterior. Pieces broken off of old furniture, and empty food and drink packets were strewn around. Roaches seemed to scurry away whenever Mark shined a light. Finally, the pair made their way up to the second story, the cat still following on their heels. That uneasy feeling that weighed on Mark and Leslie grew heavier as they scaled the creaky steps. Over the next ten minutes or so, they had managed to capture a couple of adequately eerie shots in one of the rooms. They were about to head back down when on their last shot, Mark and Leslie both saw something dart past in front of them through the camera's screen. Mark's first instinct was that it was the cat but the animal was still by his feet and it was terrified. Its hackles raised it hissed at the corner of the room that seemed empty. While trying to make out what the cat was threatened by, Mark was stunned by the sound of Leslie shrieking and jumping in fright. Did you see that? The cameraman yelled. Mark spun around, trying to catch a glimpse of whatever it was, but it was only when he stood still, however, could he see it. Not clearly, but clear enough. From the corners of their eyes, both men saw what Mark could only describe as a shadow of a woman, moving quickly out of view. Accompanying the shadow was an incoherent whispering, almost like a chant. But most overpowering of all was a sickeningly sweet smell, a sweetness so strong, so all-encompassing that it made both men feel ill. Mark and Leslie stood in the middle of the room, seemingly trapped by that scent and the sound of Hong's voice suddenly broke the spell they were under quick he yelled you know stay here both men shook their stupor off and rushed back down the stairs with Hong Mark tells me that Hong the genial old man was furious with the director he didn't say any prayers or burn any offerings Mark says can you believe it? Any director worth their salt knows that this kind of thing is standard for shoots and a must when you're doing horror. He says that after him and Leslie had told the director what had happened, the director asked if Hong could lead them in a prayer. The old man, of course, agreed. The entire crew stood outside the bungalow, looking on solemnly, as Hong asked for any spirits that were around to leave them be and let them finish their job and go home safely. I asked Mark if that helped or if it was too little too late by that point. Lighting another cigarette, he gives me a weak smile and looks like he's about to say something but before he can answer, my second interviewee for the night joins us. Hi there, he says, greeting me after patting Mark warmly on the back. My name's Suresh. Suresh has been acting for close to a decade now. But even from his earliest gigs, he'd earned a reputation among the theatre, television and film communities for two things. One, was that he was a hard worker. He'd always be one of the first to arrive on set or at rehearsals and one of the last to leave. He'd always offer to help the crew haul equipment and he'd even arrange lunch for everyone whenever he could. The other thing Suresh was known for, however, was being that fella with the third eye started off at one of my first editions, he tells me, taking a seat at the Twapayo coffee shop table between myself and my previous interviewee, Mark, an assistant director and a friend of Suresh's. The producer and director had set up a chair for me, but I just stood throughout the whole edition, he says. Before he can continue, the drink stall uncle interrupts Suresh's story to gruffly ask for his order. Suresh politely requests a te alia, but only after checking with Mark and me, whether we wanted anything as well. Once the uncle leaves, Suresh continues with a laugh. I didn't get the part, but it was only later that I found out why. They thought I was a bit too weird to work with, because I was talking to someone in the empty seat they had set up for me. Before Suresh had arrived, Mark was telling me about an experience that he had encountered in 2015 on a shoot at an abandoned bungalow in Changi. Mark had asked Suresh to join us because he felt his friend could add a little more to this story, particularly because of his ability. After Mark catches him up, With what he's already told me, Suresh asks if he could start from when the crew had arrived at the bungalow. I tell him to start from his beginning. After the bus had pulled up to the location, the crew's driver, an old man named Hong, had asked two young production assistants not to smoke around a bin that was a couple of metres away from the bungalow itself. No smoke there. Down there no good, he said. Many times got bad things happened there. The two PAs had brushed the old man off. Suresh wasn't sure what bad thing Hong was talking about. But in that moment, it was clear as day to Suresh why Hong had an uneasy feeling about that bin. Standing between the two PAs was what Suresh describes as the shadow of a woman. Well, actually, it wasn't a shadow per se, he corrects himself, pausing to find the right words. Almost like a cloud of smoke that took the form of a woman. Suresh tells me And he's been seeing spirits since he was a child. But he'd never seen anything like this before. Most of the time, they just look like you and me. So this was... He trails off for a second. I give him a while to compose himself. Then ask him, what happened next? Official merchandise. I freaked out, of course. He chuckles, mirthlessly. Instead of calmly coaxing the PAs away from the bin, I yelled at them, don't play around this area, you don't know what's watching. I must have come off either a nutcase or a diva. As the PAs begrudgingly walked away from their smoking corner though, the shadow seemed to dissipate. It should have filled Suresh with relief, but he was still plagued by an uneasy feeling. He knew that the shadow wasn't gone. But it wasn't just that, though. The whole area gave off an ominous vibe, and not just because it was tucked away in a seemingly forgotten part of Changi, far enough from the nearest sign of civilization. After a few hours of prep and setup, the director eventually asked Hong to say a couple of prayers to keep the crew safe from the supernatural as was customary on almost all shoots in Singapore. But even as everyone gathered around the elderly driver Suresh knew that his prayers would not be enough. And almost to prove his point just outside the huddled crew the shadow reappeared. Like before, however, it vanished a moment later. Mark interjects at this point. As far as I could tell, things were going fine after the prayers, he says. Suresh adds that he and Mark didn't really know each other back then. So Mark wasn't familiar with his reputation. Bro, if I was... I'd have honestly just ran the hell out of there myself the moment I saw the look on Suresh's face, Mark says. All through the night, the shadow would reappear and disappear again and again. It didn't seem to bother anyone and mostly kept its distance. But, of course, Suresh couldn't shake that uneasy feeling. He clearly wasn't the only one, though. A couple of times, he caught Hong arguing with the director. His tone was one of worry and concern. But the director kept waving him off. Suresh would later find out that Hong shared his uneasiness and tried to get the director to call off the shoot or at least wrap things up early. But the director wouldn't budge. Feeling trapped and alone, Suresh tried to keep his head down. Tried to just do what he needed to do and not pay any attention to the shadow. But then he was hit with a sickeningly sweet smell. It was a smell that Mark had smelled earlier when he had an encounter of his own. It was overpowering, and made Suresh feel ill. The way he would later describe it to Mark, though, he realized that the sweetness had hit him much harder than Mark. Unable to ignore it, that's when Suresh realized why he kept seeing the shadow appear and disappear all night. It wasn't just one shadow. I ask him how many there were. The color drains from his cheeks. Too many, he says. And they weren't human. He realized then that they were gathering and getting closer to the crew. And they were chanting. Something. He looked over at Hong. The old man couldn't see them, that much Suresh was now sure of. If he could, he'd be losing his mind. Hell, Suresh was starting to wonder if he was the one that was losing his mind. But he wasn't. Even though he couldn't see them, Hong could obviously sense them. The driver was pacing around nervously and clearly considering hopping onto his bus and just driving off, leaving the whole crew stranded there. The very possibility of that propelled Suresh into action. He ran up to the director, not caring about how crazy or demanding he looked and absolutely insisted that they needed to pack up immediately and leave. They broke out into a shouting match Stunning the rest of the crew into silence Before Mark stepped in And took Suresh's side I heard the words Sweet smell and shadow Mark tells me That's how I knew Suresh was experiencing something like What I had earlier that night Then that's when I realised that The prayers weren't enough That we weren't safe there furious but outnumbered the director finally gave in to Suresh and Mark's demands then ordered everyone to pack up within 15 frantic minutes everyone had boarded the bus as they drove off away from that cursed location Suresh who had been sitting next to Mark somewhere towards the back hugging his knees against his chest and rocking back and forth allowed himself to look out of the bus's window. All these years later, Suresh still won't tell Mark what he saw. All I know is that it made him start crying like a baby, Mark says. Suresh and Mark are quiet for a moment, before Suresh uneasily laughs off the palpable tension. Phew, that was something, huh? He says weakly. Then clumsily excuses himself to use the restroom. Mark waits a second, before telling me that he actually did some digging a few years after that night about the history of that bungalow. There were rumours of suicides and even murders... Nothing confirmed, of course, he says. Not officially. He suspects that's what the chanting and the sweet smells were all about. They wanted us to join them. He pauses for a beat, then continues, tilting his head towards the direction of the restrooms. I think that's what he saw that night. All those spirits... Calling out to him, reaching out to him. Another pause, then, what worries me is that he hasn't stopped hearing them since then. Mark and I light another cigarette each and wait for Suresh to come back from the restroom. And wait. And wait. But he never returns. Lewis has been living in Singapore for about five years now and he's been clean and sober for 15. We're sitting at a coffee shop along Kampong Baru Road, a short walk away from his flat on a gloomy Saturday evening. Outside, the winds howling loudly, the clouds threatening rain, but the ominous weather stands in complete contrast to Lewis's disposition. He lets out a hearty laugh, as he tells me that being a non-drinker while working in public relations tends to raise eyebrows. There's this weird impression among people who aren't in the industry that it's nothing but glitz, glamour and decadence, he says, waving his hand flamboyantly as he rolls his eyes. I mean, yeah, there's all of that. But do they think we're planning these events while chugging Chardonnay? Sobriety, of course, didn't come easy for him. When he started his career back in the Philippines, Louis, just like everyone else, fell for that idea that PR was all about overindulging. We didn't have a lot growing up, So I guess once I started doing well, I swung way too far in that other direction. Work hard, play harder, you know? He says, matter-of-factly. He tells me that whenever he was under the influence, he was obnoxious, belligerent, and at his worst, verbally abusive. He says he's not using the drinks and the drugs as an excuse though. They brought up the worst in me, but the fact is that all of that was in me to begin with, he tells me, his mood somehow still up despite the less than cheery turn the conversations taken. He says that he eventually went sober thanks to an intervention from his mom and his partner at the time. But there was an incident before that intervention that certainly helped shake him out of his perpetual stupor. So I take that as my cue, fish my recorder out of my bag and when everything's set up, I ask him to start from the beginning. It was 15 years ago. Lois had finished an event for a luxury watch brand at a hotel in downtown Manila at 10 p.m. He had spent the four hours after partying. When it finally came time for him to head home, he'd managed to hop into a cab and blacked out almost immediately. When he came to, he found himself not at home, but lying along the shoulder of an empty highway. It took him a second or two before he figured out roughly where he was the highway was about a twenty minute walk away from his flat as he stood up and dusted himself off Lewis realized that his phone and wallet were missing slurring out a curse he staggered down the highway till he found an exit and stumbled off into a dimly lit road mildly busier than the highway A couple of cars passed him but judging by the look of the neighborhood he knew better than to try and hail them down and ask for a lift. Eventually after stopping to throw up twice he turned a corner in front of an old high school building and came across a forested area that seemed to span a couple of blocks. Lewis spun around a bit, trying to get his bearings. He was still nursing the effects of that night's molly and champagne, but he certainly wasn't inebriated enough to plunge headfirst into a pitch-black forest. Looking up and down the street, though, he reasoned out that this seemed to be the only way. So, hesitantly, he stumbled into the forest covering up a creeping sense of fear by slurring out more curses at the cabby who'd robbed him Lewis moved as quickly as he could through the trees even though he knew he was heading straight ahead he kept getting the sense that he was somehow hopelessly lost his eyes darting left and right some sign that he was on the right path. Soon enough, he thought he heard the sound of cars up ahead and breathed a sigh of relief, the fear giving way to some semblance of sobriety. But that's when he heard laughter. It didn't sound malicious. It wasn't a cackle or anything like that. In fact, it was almost joyous. Lewis assumed at first that it was a woman from up ahead, where the cars were. But then he realized she seemed a whole lot closer. His eyes darted around faster, left and right, left and right. But he couldn't catch sight of her. And then he realized why. That laughter wasn't coming from around him. It was coming from above him. Lewis caught a glimpse of a human-shaped shadow up in the trees. I thought it was hopping from branch to branch at first, he says. But then I started to realize that it wasn't moving. It just disappeared and reappeared somewhere else. Throughout it all, the laughter remained joyous, but eerily so. Lewis started sprinting as fast as he could towards where the sound of cars was coming from. But no matter how hard he pushed himself, civilization seemed to always be out of reach. After a while, however, exhaustion and the remaining effects of the night's decadence caught up with him. The last thing he remembered before blacking out again was the sound of soft footsteps on the grass behind him and that laughter right by his ear. When Lewis finally woke up again, he was back in his flat, lying on the couch. As he sat up, he was immediately overcome with nausea. Running to the bathroom, he threw up, more forcefully than he had the night before or on any other night. As the nausea eventually subsided, Lewis sat beside the bowl, his eyes shut, trying to piece together how he got back when he heard the chittering of an insect. He didn't pay much attention at first, but the noise started to gnaw at him, devolving into a low buzz that seemed to overpower everything else. Opening his eyes, he winced as he looked around to find the offending bug but couldn't see any around. Suddenly, it occurred to him where that sound was coming from. Hesitantly, he leaned over to look into the bowl. I had been cursed by a mankukulam, Lewis tells me, a witch. He's not sure who had asked for the curse, but he says with a chuckle, that it's not like he was short of enemies at the time. He called his mother as soon as he managed to pull himself out of the toilet and she in turn called a shaman to come over and help. He managed to alleviate the curse but the after effects, a fever and this constant nausea stayed with me for what felt like the longest two weeks of my life, Lewis says. And of course... I absolutely refuse to throw up again. Despite everything he went through, though, he was back to overindulging just a couple of weeks after his ordeal. If anything, more so than before. You can't be frightened out of addiction, he says. It's something you need to want to overcome. He goes quiet for just a moment. And I realize, that's the first time he used that word all afternoon. Addiction. I raise my mug, and with a smile, break the silence. Hey, I'll toast to that, I tell him. Agung hasn't been in Southeast Asia for a little over 20 years. His family moved to San Francisco for his father's job when he was 10 and he's lived there ever since. He's been in Singapore now for about a week for work of his own. But he made it a point to stop by Indonesia first. That's where his family hails from. Specifically a town in Samarang called Banyumanek. When a mutual friend found out that he'd been in Singapore, they arranged for us to meet up. Sitting at a cafe in the heart of the CBD, sipping his flat white, Agung tells me that visiting his extended family in Samarang was eye-opening and enlightening for a number of reasons. The most important for him was getting back in touch with his roots. San Franz all I've known for most of my life, he says. It's my home, but not my culture. And that disconnect has always made me feel a little lost. He says that even something as simple as speaking Bahasa with his relatives felt like such a big deal to him. Of course, there were other reasons why his visit to Indonesia was so eventful. So, I was having tea with my Uncle Faisal, my mum's brother, Agung says. He used to live next door to us in our apartment when I was a kid. I was just reminiscing about that place when he gave me this knowing smirk. I asked him what that smirk meant. And he responds with a smile of his own. One that's decidedly less enigmatic, I'm sure. Agung's voice goes a little higher as he leans forward eagerly. Well, he asked me if I'd ever experienced anything, you know, out of the ordinary when I was living there. It's only then that I realize he's relating a story ...of his homeland to me. And in fact, to anyone, really, for the very first time. Before Agung can continue though, I quickly take out my recorder... ...and ask him to start from the beginning. His uncle Faisal had lived in the apartment since the early 80s. Nearly a decade after the government had converted the area's kampong into a housing complex By the mid-90s he was a happily married man with three kids two of whom were around Agung's age which is why he chose to live next door to his sister and her family Faisal loved his wife and children very much but as with all parents he definitely treasured his quiet time away from them too It was a chilly October evening back in 1994. One of those rare evenings when he had their ground floor flat all to himself. His wife had taken their toddler out for a playdate with her brother and his kids. His two older children, together with Agung, were staying over at a friend's place. He had no plans. There was no one around. There wasn't even a sound, except for the rustling of their curtains as a gentle breeze passed through their apartment. As much as he appreciated being alone, though, Faisal decided it might have been a little too quiet for his liking. So, he put on one of his favorite rock albums from the 80s laid down on the cold tile floor, closed his eyes and let the wailing guitars, throbbing bass and rhythmic drums wash over him. The music took him back and he reminisced over how quickly time had flown by. From first moving into the apartment when he was a pimply teenager, blasting this album at full volume, much to his parents' chagrin, to being a family man who knew just the right volume to play his music without annoying his other neighbours. He smiled to himself, air drumming along to the album's third track, when suddenly, he heard a faint sound from outside his flat. It wasn't a familiar noise, like cars or kids playing. It sounded like a soldier barking orders. Faisal got up off the floor slowly. He lowered the stereo's volume a little more. Sure enough, mixed in with the low rumbling of distant thunder and the increasingly ferocious winds was the sound of a soldier yelling commands what made it stranger and more terrifying was that the orders were being yelled in Japanese hesitantly Faisal crept towards the living room window which faced a small field and river across from which was a still undeveloped forested area Peeking out, he saw two figures marching towards the apartment building. He didn't get a good look at their faces, almost as if they were perpetually shrouded in shadow. But he recognized their uniforms. They were the Kenpatai, the Japanese military police, from World War II, Agung says, trying to maintain a level tone, but clearly still fascinated by what his uncle had told him. Although he had crouched down, Faisal could not look away, even as the soldiers grew closer. No matter how close they got, though, he still couldn't see their expressions, But he knew, almost on a primal level, that they were glaring, angrily, at him. Faisal only snapped out of his trance the moment the spectral soldiers raised their pistols and pointed them straight at him. Instinctively, he ducked for cover, just as he heard a loud bang the sky seemed to fill with blinding light. As the moment passed, he looked back up, out of the window. Nothing. The Japanese soldiers were gone. Eventually, he found the courage to head outside. As he made his way out, he started to suspect that he imagined the whole thing that wasn't gunfire he told himself that was just the thunder but when he got out to the field and as it started to rain Faisal stood shaking at the sight of what waited for him two marks in the apartment building's wall just below where his living room's window was two marks in that looked a lot like bullet holes. Faisal never told his wife or any of his kids what he had seen. He didn't even tell his sister or Agung's father. Instead, the following evening, he chased his family out of the house with some flimsy excuse and called someone over to bless the house to protect it from any wandering or malicious spirits. He'd still see the soldiers again and again after that night, though. But from then on, they would never be marching as close to his flat as they were before. Instead, they would always be on the other side of the river, on the edge of that thick forest and even though he still couldn't see their faces clearly he knew they were glaring at him angrier than ever Agung tells me that Faisal wasn't sure why he never saw them before that night but he did some research into that area during the Japanese occupation of Indonesia, Semarang was the site of the infamous Pertempuran Limahari, or the Five Days Battle. While the battle itself happened in what is now downtown Semarang, Faisal learned that the city's residents chased the Japanese out to rural and kampung areas, areas just like Banyumanik. I ask Agung what he thinks of all of this. (laughs) I know it's weird how excited I am about it he says with a chuckle then continues slightly quieter but I finally feel like I've got this connection to my roots you know and this story felt like a huge part of it for some reason that makes sense? I smile and tell him more than you know. I wanted to do what you do when I was a kid, Wadud tells me, after he shakes my hand and takes a seat across from me at a coffee shop in Chinatown. We order our drinks and I ask him what he means. He tells me that he had a ghost hunting phase when he was younger I chuckle and explain that what I do is a little different he looks somewhat embarrassed but I assure him that it's fine there are apparently a lot of misconceptions about me I add that I've never actively gone hunting for the supernatural itself he looks away Still clearly embarrassed, but also a little thoughtful. That's smart, he says. Smarter than I was when I was a kid. See, Wadud grew up in Brunei. Back in the mid-2000s, during his late teens, boys would dare each other to visit supposedly haunted spots. Some of them, he says, did it to prove their bravery while others even thought that it might impress the girls I tell him that we all made mistakes when we were younger yeah but not everyone's mistakes come back to literally haunt them he says I've met more than a fair share of people who can relate I say with a smirk that's hopefully more sympathetic than sardonic thankfully he responds with a smile of his own and his mood seems to improve. As our drinks arrive, I quietly place my recorder on the table. Not wanting to bring his mood back down, I then ask him, as casually as I can, to start from the beginning. Wadud and his cousin Dummit grew up around Kampung Rimba. So they spent a huge part of their lives hearing stories about the Gadong House. An infamous abandoned building located in a secluded forested area. The Gadong House inspired all sorts of tales of the supernatural. Everyone seemed to know someone who knew someone else who saw something there. Wadud and Dummit had decided however that all those stories were rubbish. They made a pact that they would get actual proof of the supernatural. And that's just what they set out to do armed with a camera late one Thursday night. It was about an hour long bike ride on which Wadud and Dummit got lost a couple of times. Eventually, however, they finally found the building. Standing ominously in the middle of a field of overgrown grass, Gadong House really did live up to its reputation. Wadud could see how badly it had fallen into disrepair, even under just the light of the full moon. The parts of its walls that remained standing were overrun by creepers and moss and the shadows that its mangled figure cast were enough to send chills up Wadud's spine. The pair left their bikes a couple of meters away from the entrance of Gadung House, hoping to walk the rest of the way, but that proved to be a futile exercise as they waded into the chest-high grass. Despite keeping the building in their sight the whole time, they somehow kept getting lost. Try as they might, no matter how many twists and turns they took, they couldn't seem to reach the structure. Damit seemed to grow more frustrated, but that unease that the building inspired only seemed to grow in Wadud he urged Dummit to leave and after a while, Dummit relented. It took them another 15 minutes to make their way back to their bikes and in that time, Warut could have sworn, he saw a shadow creeping round hidden amongst the grass. The first time he saw it, he grabbed onto Dummit's sleeve and tried to point it out to his cousin but when Dummit turned around however the shadow was nowhere to be seen he asked Wadud if he was sure trying to sound concerned but failing to hide the condescending skepticism in his tone Wadud insisted that he had seen it but Dummit brushed him off we don't want to be like one of those other people with Wild stories and no proof, he had said. Everyone will laugh at us. Hesitantly, Warud tried to ignore the shadow and pretend that it wasn't watching him and his cousin. Soon, they reached their bikes and headed off. All the way back to Warud's place, however, he kept darting his head around. Could have sworn and he saw that same shadow following them. Dummit stayed over at Wadud's place that night. Shortly after they returned home, Dummit headed to bed in Wadud's room. Wadud, however, was still too jumpy to sleep. He watched TV with his living room, kitchen, and dining room lights on. But soon the shadows of his own home started to feel oppressive. He crept into his room to grab his laptop so that he could game outside without waking Dummit up. His cousin, Wadud noticed, was sleeping on his belly, which was strange for Dummit, who Wadud knew generally preferred to sleep on his side. Wadud shrugged it off, though, and lugged his laptop out to the dining table, where he gamed until his eyes started to feel heavy. Finally, feeling like he could get some rest, he returned to his room and laid out a mattress on the floor, as he always did when Dummit stayed over. He curled up on the mattress and started dozing off, until he noticed that Dummit was staring at him. What is it? he asked his cousin. he received no reply. Wadud glared at Dummit, But the longer he looked, the more he realized that something wasn't right about him. His features were all slightly off, like they were shifting even as Wadud was trying to focus on him. Suddenly, something drew Wadud's attention to the top of Dummett's head. There, he saw a cloth knot. Confused, his focus moved back to his cousin's face, only to discover blood dripping from Dummett's unblinking eyes. What it leapt to his feet? scrambling backwards without looking away from the thing that Dummit had become. As he reached his bedroom door he finally got a clear view of not Dummit but what was only posing as his cousin. A figure now sitting up on his bed draped in a white shroud. It's Undead face glared menacingly out at him. A pochong. Wadud let out a terrified scream, turned and ran out of the room. In his panic, though, he tripped over himself and hit his head against the side of the dining room table. He started to black out. The last thing he saw as the shadows of his mind crept up on him was the pochong coming towards him. Wadud woke the next morning to his parents and Damit standing over him, all of them wearing looks of concern. Wadud's initial reaction was to push Damit away in panic. Eventually, his parents managed to calm him down and his cousin, more confused than anything else, asked him What had happened? When he had explained to them what he had seen the night before, Wadud's parents were furious. They chastised the pair for even going near the Gadung house and immediately sought help from an organisation that dealt with evil spirits. Wadud tells me that he never encountered anything else like that ever again. Looking embarrassed again, though his mood remained relatively chipper. I ask him if anyone ever dared him to go to another supposedly haunted spot. He tells me that people did, but the fear of the consequences far outweighed his fear of peer pressure. He pauses for a moment, smiling, then says... I guess we all have those defining moments. We have to learn to grow up. That, I tell him, is something a lot of people I've spoken to can relate to as well. The flame from Cindy's lighter highlights the deep set lines on her face. She takes a drag from her cigarette and calls the drink stall auntie over. She talks and laughs with the auntie in Hokkien for a bit, before ordering a copio for herself, and a kopi for me. I ask if she knows the auntie, and she shakes her head. She says that she always makes the effort to be friendly with service staff. After all, she tells me she appreciates how difficult their jobs can be. A single mother who spent much of her 20s working in karaoke bars and CD lounges, Cindy's clearly had a tougher life than most. Still, her smile is that of someone who's finally found some peace and has hope for the future. She tells me about how the other mothers at her son's school look at her with disdain and disgust. She then adds, with a laugh, how after she spent years fighting off the advances of leering men, judgmental glares don't really phase her. She also says, with a wink, that the perverted uncles weren't the only things she had to be wary of during her younger days. I return the smile and ask her to start from the beginning. Cindy worked at a bar along Sago Lane in the early 90s. She can't remember its exact name, but says that it was probably called Disco Party KTV or something like that. What she definitely remembers, though, was what an older hostess told her. That back in the 60s, that whole stretch was occupied almost entirely by funeral parlours. Despite getting a facelift in the 80s, the area still had a negative energy about it. This energy certainly wasn't helped during the Hungry Ghost Month, when owners of the bars would burn offerings outside the establishments. And it was one of these nights during that month when Cindy had finished her last shift. There weren't many customers around, and most of the other girls had left already. She was chatting with me, the hostess that was manning the reception counter, when a group of three men and two women walked in. Cindy tells me that she was never the sort who was sensitive to these sorts of things. But the moment this group walked in, she was overcome with an intensely uneasy feeling. The first thing that struck her about them was what they were wearing. The men wore bright red. The two women were dressed in all green. Despite looking like they were in their mid-20s, the style of their clothes seemed to belong more to the 70s than the 90s. And the shades of those colors just didn't seem right to her. She can't adequately describe it, but she said that there was an almost unearthly quality to their clothes. The next thing she noticed was that they were all very pale. Cindy fought through her unease and told them politely that they were closing for the night. The group didn't seem to pay her any attention and walked over to a room on the far end of the bar. Tired and cranky from a long shift, Cindy yelled out to the group in Hokkien that the bar was closed and they should get out. The group stopped just outside their room turned and glared at her. That's when May quietly but firmly hissed at Cindy to leave them alone. Cindy turned to her and was about to argue when she saw the look on May's face. The girl was staring fearfully at the CCTV monitors embedded into the reception counter the glow from the screens accentuating her terror. She pleaded with Cindy one more time to leave the group alone. Cindy relented then turned back to the group who were entering the room. As the door shut May gestured for Cindy to take a look at the CCTV feed with her. Cindy went around and saw what had spooked May. She was looking at the feed from the room that the group had just entered. The lights were on, and the TV was blaring an old Teresa Tang song, there was no one there. Cindy wanted to rush over and see the room for herself, but May grabbed her arm and shook her head. Don't disturb, she said, shivering. When the last of the other customers and the other hostesses had left. Cindy helped May to lock up. No one ever left the room on the far end. The night after, Cindy returned to work and asked the other hostesses where May was. They told her that she hadn't showed up or even called in sick. And after her shift, Cindy tried to call me, but the girl's housemates said that May never returned the night before. I ask Cindy if she ever found out what had happened to me, or she ever learned who that group was, but she shakes her head and takes a drag off a third cigarette for the night. She tells me that in her line of work, it was important to always be prepared to do whatever it takes to stay safe. She says that a month after that incident, she made an appointment to get a Sakyant tattoo on her back. The monk who tattooed her used a traditional metal rod. She tells me that it hurt like hell, but was totally worth it. A year later, Cindy found herself working another late shift during the Hungry Ghost month. She was leaning over the reception counter with her back to the door, chatting with another hostess when she was gripped by that uneasy feeling again she turned her head and sure enough there they were all of them eerily pale the group glared at Cindy then seemed to turn their attention to her back without a word they all gave her a curt nod she turned around then nodded back and moved aside as they made their way to the same room at the far end of the bar. Cindy tells me she hasn't had an experience quite like that since then. There were times when she felt like she was being followed after her shift, as she always felt like she wasn't in any danger. A couple of years after, she got herself a job as an admin clerk and never looked back on those days. Her voice drops to a whisper, and she adds that she still tries to find out what had happened to me, but hasn't had much luck. She shakes her head, takes another drag from her cigarette, and smiles. It's when I realize that her smile isn't of someone who's completely found peace. It's a smile that says that she's prepared. I return her smile, finish my drink, and thank her for a time. When Frank arrives at the coffee shop along Upper Thompson Road, he half-jokingly apologizes for his smell. Sweating profusely, the 30-year-old homemaker says that he'd just finished a two-hour walk around McRitchie Reservoir. I ask him whether he goes hiking often and he tells me, rather cheerily, that he tries to every other day. I get the kids to school by 7, which gives me ample time to make my way through a trail, get home and have lunch ready for them when they get back, he says. I find his passion for the outdoors little at odds with what little details he's shared with me over the phone about... His experience, which began on a hiking trail in Rawang. He smiles and says that he understands my confusion. My partner's not exactly fond of my hikes either, all things considered, he says, then continues with a chuckle. I've explained to her that it's okay and generally she trusts me, but she still gives me the side eye when I tell her about my day. The drink stall auntie finally comes by to take our orders. I ask for a kopi, and Frank, of course, asks for an isotonic drink. As the elderly lady heads off to get our drinks, I fish out my recorder. After he wipes his sweaty brow with a towel, I tell Frank that whenever he's ready, he can start from the beginning. Frank was 17 when he went on a week-long school trip to Rawang, with about 15 of his classmates, chaperoned by two teachers. It was one of Frank's first real visits overseas, so he was naturally excited and game to try anything. The group was staying at a couple of very modest bungalows, located just outside an expansive stretch of forest. The plan was to go camping during the day, but spend nights in the bungalows. On the first day, however, while some of their classmates were getting settled in, Frank and four of his friends decided to sneak off and explore the forest. Two of those friends jogged ahead, but Frank mostly stuck with his best friend Subash and Subash's girlfriend, Mei Ling. As they continued on, though, Frank found himself drawn deeper into the forest. He says that it wasn't just a natural attraction to the greenery, it was like he was almost entranced. Before long, he realized that he had somehow been separated from Subash and Mailing at some point. Thankfully, He was still on a well-worn trail, so as dusk began to roll around, he felt confident that finding his way back to the bungalows wasn't going to be an issue. On his return trek, however, he passed by a little atop hut, a structure that he didn't remember from before. Sitting in the middle of this forest, the hut would have been disturbing enough on its own. But the fact that night was fast approaching and the setting sun cast ominous shadows across the dwelling only made Frank feel even more uneasy. Quickening his pace, he jogged past the hut. Part of him wanted to ignore it, to pretend that there was nothing particularly creepy about it. But no matter how hard he tried, he just couldn't bring himself to take his eyes off of it. Just before he finally turned a corner, Frank could have sworn he heard something mixed in with the screeching calls of the birds flying overhead. The laughter of a small child. I made it back to the bungalows, perfectly fine, and pretty soon I'd all but forgotten about the hut, Frank tells me, taking a sip from his drink. He continues, In fact, after a great big dinner with my classmates, I was actually feeling quite tired. But when I finally climbed into bed, I just couldn't get to sleep. He says that two of his classmates, with whom he was sharing a room, were still wide awake. They were laughing and gossiping and joking. He didn't want to shush them though. After all, this was supposed to be a fun trip, not just for him, but for everyone. Eventually, his own exhaustion overcame the chattering of his friends. Then he fell asleep. But he didn't sleep all the way through the night. At around 3 in the morning, he woke to the sound of laughter again. Feeling less understanding than earlier, Frank initially wanted to turn around and not so nicely ask whomever it was that was giggling to get to bed. He stopped himself from doing so, however, and he realized that the laughter wasn't coming from any of his classmates. It was the laughter He had heard near the hut earlier. It sounded playful, yes, but not quite right. Gripped by panic, Frank laid completely still. He tried to will himself back to sleep, but the laughter continued. Hours passed, though, and as sunlight crept into the room... The laughter began to fade. At breakfast, his classmates were all lively and excited, but Frank remained silent. The lack of sleep was one thing, but amidst the cheeriness of his friends, he could have sworn that he still heard the disembodied laughter from the hut. Frank says that the laughter seemed to follow him all through the week. Less at night, after that first night, but more during the day, when they were out camping. He became withdrawn and paranoid, his eyes constantly darting around to the shadows of the forest, every rustle of leaves putting him on edge. When the trip came to an end, Frank thought that his ordeal would finally be over that the presence that had taunted him over the last week would leave him alone as he returned to the familiarity of Singapore. But he was wrong. Over the next two weeks after that trip, I still felt paranoid, like there was always something following me, he says. It lurked around his classes, It loomed on his periphery when he was out with friends. Even being at home felt oppressive and unwelcoming. At first, whenever he got that sense that he was being followed, he would abruptly spin around, trying to seem as courageous and unaffected as he could. But soon, the fear of actually seeing the presence overpowered his attempts at bravery. It all came to a head when he was woken up one more morning by the sound of laughter. That terrifyingly familiar laughter. His lights had been switched on at some point during the night. He didn't remember doing so, but that wasn't what he was focused on that morning. His attention was fixed instead on the shadow that seemed to be flying across the ceiling of his room. Once again, as the sun came up, the laughter seemed to vanish. The shadow, likewise, was gone. But that oppressive feeling remained. Feeling like he was finally at his wits' end, Frank messaged his mother. While he was at school that day Telling her about everything he had experienced That evening His mother brought him to a witch doctor Who confirmed That there was a child's spirit Following him around Since Rawang But added That the child was not alone There was another presence Much Older presence Not malicious, the witch doctor told Frank But confused and angry The witch doctor said that Frank's third eye had opened His latent ability to see spirits Probably awakened while he was in the forest Because he could sense these spirits They latched onto him And followed him all the way to Singapore. I felt less scared, Frank tells me. A touch of melancholy in his tone. And more sad for them instead. They weren't trying to frighten me. They were just lost. That night, as Frank lay in bed, he spoke out loud to the spirits, as reassuringly as he could manage. He said that he didn't mean to draw them away from their home. He told them that he meant them no harm, and he promised them that he would make things right. A day later, Frank's mother booked for him the earliest flight to Rawang. He made his way to the same forest, walked down its well-worn path, and visited the hut again. And he waited there till he heard the child's laughter once more. As the laughter continued, fading deep into the forest's shadows, Frank felt an enormous sense of relief. He allowed himself a moment to cry, then headed back home.
1: To find out if it's right for you,
2: I ask Frank whether he sees anything on his hikes. He smiles and says, All the time. That's kind of why I do it. He tells me that he can tell the difference now between malicious spirits and benevolent ones, so he knows where to steer clear of. I ask him why he goes on these hikes if he knows that there are spirits along these trails. He says that after understanding how frightened the presence from Rawang was, he realized that spirits must have felt other emotions too. Fear, yes, but also maybe even happiness and loneliness. Taking one last gulp, of his isotonic drink. Frank says, I just want them to know that they're seen, and that they're not forgotten. Maggie takes a seat across from me at a coffee shop in Tampanese and greets me with a polite hello and half-smile. After we order our drinks, I try to start things off with a bit of small talk. It's something I normally do with most of the people that I speak with, to help put them at ease. All I seem to get from Maggie, however, are monotonous one-word answers and curt nods. It doesn't take me long to realise that it's not shyness keeping her mum. She clearly doesn't want to talk about her experience at all. A mother of two in her late 40s, Maggie was introduced to me by Sarah, one of her colleagues at the supermarket where she works. I learned a bit of Maggie's story from Sarah, something about a sister in Lim Chukang Cemetery. So I try another approach. I tell her, A little about my own family. Hoping that I'll get her to open up. It doesn't work either. Somewhat exasperated, I decide to forego any of my other usual methods and simply ask her why she'd even agreed to meet with me. Her lips curl, twisting her barely held together neutrality into an annoyed expression. She lets out a... Then... Confesses that she's here as a favour to Sarah who'd help cover for one of her shifts at the last minute. The only reason Sarah even knows about what happened is because a few of us went for supper and drinks after a long shift. Maggie grumbles. I had too many beers and I let it slip. She sounds angry though clearly not at Sarah or me. It was a mistake, she adds sternly, but with a slight tremor in her voice. Enough of a tremor that I know better than to respond. Instead, we sit in silence for a minute or so before she finally exhales a sigh, one heavy with the weight of a greater silence I don't say a word I just take out my recorder and switch it on I want to tell her that she can start from the beginning but eventually she does so on her own For as long as she could remember Maggie's family would drive to Lim Chukang Cemetery for the Qingming Festival every year at around 3 in the morning. Because of her father's erratic work schedule, that was the only time that they could make the trip to clean Maggie's grandparents' graves. She winces as she recalls how her parents had to drag her out of the car when she was younger. She would cry and wail deathly afraid to visit the graves in the middle of the night. Every Qingming felt like an eternity for her. Her eyes would dart all around. She'd jump at every shadow. And even when it was finally over, she'd find it difficult to fall asleep every night for about a week after. The darkness of her unlit room reminding her too much of the cemetery at that ungodly hour. Eventually, as she grew older, Maggie didn't put up a fight and just went along with her mother and father, even though she was still a little scared. Things were different after her younger sister, Lisa, was born though. When Lisa was old enough and cried and wailed during Ching Ming, their parents ...didn't drag her out of the car. Instead, they instructed Maggie to stay behind and keep an eye on her. In fact, their parents doted on their younger daughter... ...in more than a few other ways that Maggie felt they never did with her. They bought Lisa new clothes when Maggie had to wear her cousin's hand-me-downs. They showered Lisa with shiny toys while Maggie had to be content with old board games that were falling apart. Each little moment of perceived favoritism felt like a cut, and none hurt more than her starkest reminder of their parents' bias, giving in to little Princess Lisa during Qingming. In 1990, when Maggie was 16, and Lisa was just six, Maggie decided that she'd had enough. When her parents told her to stay in the car with Lisa, she obliged, as always. But as soon as her parents were out of sight, Maggie opened the door and hopped out of the car. Her sister tried to follow, but Maggie stopped her. You leave, and the ghost will catch you, Maggie said trying to hold back a smile as tears welled up in little Princess Lisa's eyes. Maggie didn't go very far, just far enough to frighten her sister. The car was still in sight as she headed down a dirt path that was parallel to the rows upon rows of graves. As she made her way a couple of meters along the path, she heard her sister start to cry. Despite her resentment, Maggie tells me, she didn't actually hate Lisa. It wasn't her sister's fault that her parents treated her the way they did. But Maggie couldn't take out her anger on her mother and father. So instead, she did so by refusing to respond to her little sister's frightened sobs. Maggie fought against her own fear of the cemetery at this hour by humming a nameless tune to herself as she continued down the path. But her tune was soon interrupted as her sister's fearful cries turned into a terrified shriek. Maggie spun around just in time to see shape hidden within the darkness perched atop the car she couldn't tell if it was human or animal but she could hear it scratching at the roof of the vehicle even over the sound of Lisa's screams Maggie thought she wouldn't be able to move but something in her seemed to spur her on, pushing her forward towards the car and her little sister. As she ran, she kept her eyes on that shape, praying that it would leave Lisa alone, but also that it wouldn't, instead, turn its attention towards her. At first, it seemed like the shape was rocking the car, almost like it was trying to find Another way in. The closer Maggie got, however, the more nebulous the shape became. When she finally reached the car, it was completely still. Then it seemed like the shape was nothing more than the branch of a tree, swaying in the wind, scraping against the vehicle's roof. But Maggie knew. She absolutely knew that this hadn't been the case. She knew that there wasn't a branch hanging over the car before. She knew that she saw a shape terrorizing her sister. She knew all of this and so did Lisa. When Maggie opened the door she found her sister rocking back and forth in her seat whimpering to herself their parents had heard Lisa's screams and came running back in a panic their father pushed Maggie aside to get a closer look at his youngest daughter while their mother shook Maggie and asked her what had happened Maggie stammered unintelligibly unable to find the words to explain their father packed all of them into the car and and quickly maneuvered out of the cemetery. When they turned onto the long, lonely main road that would take them home, Maggie caught a glimpse of what at first seemed like an empty bus stop. But as the car sped away and the streetlights seemed to almost shift, she saw it. A shadow perched atop one of the bus stop seats. She remained silent for the entire ride home. Lisa, however, remained silent for the next five years. It took a long time and help from all sorts of specialists for her to get back to Something like normal, Maggie tells me, then adds, but that, uh, that's a whole other story. She lets out another heavy sigh. I realized that, despite her initial protests, she really did want to talk about this. But it wasn't fear. What I had thought was an overly guarded disposition that held her back. It was shame. I try to find words of comfort. But nothing comes to mind. Creatures and spirits are one thing. But helping someone come to terms with that kind of guilt? That was something that I found a lot more difficult. It's 2am and I'm sitting at a coffee place. Near Clark Key, sipping and overpriced, flat white. Most of the people I speak to don't normally like to meet me this late, no matter how lively the location. Maslan, however, says that he's a bit of a night owl. He works as a financial consultant back home in Ipoh, so he's had to adjust his sleep schedule since his days in boarding school, when late night study sessions were a norm amongst him and his classmates. He doesn't mind, though, he says, with a genial smile as he takes his seat across from me, after picking up his mocha frappuccino from the counter. Muslin's in Singapore for a holiday, so he can enjoy a coffee at this hour without worrying about getting to the office on time tomorrow morning. When a mutual friend of ours found out he'd be in town, She suggested that he share his story with me. See, Maslan isn't a big guy. He's a little soft-spoken, with a gentle but warm demeanor. Which is why, he tells me, that people are always a little surprised to learn that he used to play rugby in school, and he was pretty good at it too. But a knee injury ended any chance he had of pursuing it further. He jokes that he's actually a lot better at finances than he was at rugby anyway. I ask him if he tried to get physiotherapy for the knee, and he just shrugs, that affable disposition taking a bit of a dip. He tells me that he'd thought about it, but after what had happened to him, he wasn't as enthusiastic about the sport as he used to be. I take that as my cue and ask him to start from the beginning. It was a Thursday evening in April 2010. Like every other weeknight at around 8pm, Maslan, a senior back then, was taking a stroll from his boarding school's dorm to the academic block. The block was never totally empty around this time there'd always be a couple of study groups scattered around in different classrooms. This mix of company and quiet was the perfect environment for Mazlan to brush up on the day's lessons. Enough activity around him so he wouldn't get bored, but not enough to distract him. He would always take his time to get to the academic block, though. Ipoh nights, he tells me, are particularly windy. Not chilly, but refreshing. He chuckles and says that these evening strolls are probably why he's such a night owl in the first place. As Muslin reached the block, he saw that the lights were on in only four of the 22 classrooms. A lot fewer than usual. He thought nothing of it at the time and made his way to to one of these rooms on the second floor, where he found his friends, Amran and Ishaq. The pair wordlessly waved to Maslan as he entered. They were sitting across from each other, but listening to music on their own MP3 players. Maslan took a seat next to Amran, and for the next half an hour, the three students silently pored over their books. The only sound that filled the room was the occasional howling of the wind. Suddenly however, the evening was interrupted by a loud bang as the classroom's door angrily slammed shut. It was a shock to all of them, but the wind had steadily grown stronger over the last 30 minutes, so it wasn't exactly unusual. What was unusual, Maslin noted almost immediately, was that the doors for the other occupied classrooms hadn't slammed shut. He shrugged it off, but just as he tried to get back to his books, he heard a strange, steady, clacking sound, like metal on concrete. Strange, but also familiar. He tapped Amran on the shoulder. The other boy pulled out his earphones and asked Maslan, "What was up? Can you hear that?" Maslan asked. But Amran had no idea what he was talking about. Not wanting to be left out of the conversation, Ishak pulled out his earphones too. When Maslan asked him if he heard that clacking sound, the other boy shook his head looking more confused than concerned. Maslan, on the other hand, was starting to worry, If for no other reason than for his own sanity. He tried to be logical about it, convincing himself that he must have been much more tired than he thought. The faculty had always been pretty lax about when the boys needed to be in bed, so Muslin was used to studying well past midnight. All those late nights must have finally taken a toll on him, he reasoned. Convinced that he wasn't going to be able to focus anymore, Muslin packed his books, wordlessly waved goodbye to his friends, and headed back to the dorms. That clacking sound, thankfully, did not follow him. Not at first, Anyway, the stronger winds, Maslan soon realized, were clearly a precursor to heavy rain. So he decided to take another sheltered route back to the dorms. As he neared the dorms, however, that clacking sound returned louder than before. It seemed to be coming from behind him. And getting closer every second. More annoyed than scared now, Muslin spun around and discovered why the noise sounded so familiar. Another student in rugby gear was jogging towards his direction, the metal cleats on the player's shoes striking the concrete path with each step. Clack, clack, clack. Mazlan let out a sigh of relief and almost wanted to laugh. The student wasn't someone that he knew, probably a junior, he thought. There was something a little off about the student though, something that Mazlan couldn't quite place. Something about his neck. But before Muslin could figure it out, the student had turned a corner and was out of sight. Muslin shook off the thought and looked around to get his bearings. As expected, it had started to rain, but he could just about make out that the building in front of him was the infirmary. Maslin says that, in retrospect, it's amazing how easily he shrugged off the inconsistencies and strangeness of that night. What was a lone rugby player doing there? He chuckles, mirthlessly. Why did I hear that sound earlier, but Amran and Isha didn't? I tell him that's a pretty common coping mechanism. That, a lot of times, People try not to see what's clearly in front of them. He shakes his head, still chastising himself for not realising sooner. The following afternoon, during lunch, Maslan asked some of his other classmates why they weren't around for an evening study session the night before. Everyone at the cafeteria table stopped what they were doing suddenly, and glared at him. Yesterday was the anniversary, his friend Asha said, staring at Maslan like he should have known better. And he should have. It was the first story that every student heard from their seniors on their first day of school. Exactly 13 years ago to the day, the rugby team at the time was practicing in the rain. A rugger had been tackled a little too hard. He landed wrong, and his neck took the brunt of the impact. He was brought to the infirmary, where, while waiting for the ambulance, he asked for some water. Somehow, because of his injury, the water entered his trachea, and he choked to death. Since then, every year on that particular night, few students would dare to stay out late, for fear of seeing that rugged spirit roaming the grounds. Mazlan lets out a sigh and says that it was just bad luck that he hadn't been paying attention to what the date was. I point out that this incident clearly hasn't deterred him from enjoying late nights. He laughs, that affable demeanor finally returning, and says with genuine affection, If you've ever experienced those wonderful, windy Ipoh nights, you'd understand why. Indran and I got to know each other during our national service. We were both drivers in an artillery unit, he was assigned to a reconnaissance detail, while I was part of the main group. Still, we both managed to bond quite quickly during our smoke breaks, and little has changed since then. We're at the smoking area of a coffee shop in Ishun, catching up on what we'd both been doing since we'd finished our cycles. He'd move into the construction business and I, well, that's why we met up today. He tells me that he's surprised that I didn't hear about these incidents during one of our outfield exercises. I remind him that everyone was pretty busy with their own details at the time. We switched topics for a while laughing and joking about old dummy buddies that we served with. Eventually, the laughs die down and I turn to Indran and ask if he's ready to tell the story. He nods, so I ask him to start from the beginning. It was one of our last reservist cycles, so this was probably 2011. Indran was driving a 1.5 tonner as part of a recce party during an exercise in Thailand in a heavily forested stretch near the town of Kanchanaburi. The party consisted of himself and a team of three surveyors that included two sergeants named Dominic and Max and a lieutenant named Daryl. It was late in the afternoon on the first day of the exercise, around 3pm, when the party received orders to head to a specific area in the forest. Judging by the 1.5 tonner's odometer, the ride hadn't been a particularly long one, but it felt like quite a distance to Indran and the two sergeants when they arrived at the designated location. What caught their attention immediately was that it was across a small river from an abandoned resort. Its building's exteriors were clearly all bright yellow once. Who knew how many years ago? But wear and tear over time had turned them into a gloomy shade of off-white with hints of mossy green. As they alighted their vehicle, however, the party was suddenly hit by an unnatural chill. Indran figured it must have dipped to about 13 degrees Celsius. Just as suddenly, almost immediately after the drop in temperature, it started to rain. A light drizzle at first, then quickly turned into a full-blown downpour. Later on, Endron and the sergeants would ask some of the Thai soldiers attached to their unit if they'd ever experienced that kind of weather before. They all gave the three men perplexed looks and shook their heads. Laughter and Daryl the dam to get back into the vehicle and for Indran to cross the river so that they could take shelter under the awning at the entrance of the resort's foyer. One of the sergeants, probably Max, told the lieutenant that that was against protocol, that the unit's commanding officer had specifically said not to enter any buildings wild outfield CO's not here right was the officer's curt response as he waved off the sergeant so Indran and the team quietly loaded back up to the 1.5 tonner and drove across the river the lieutenant clearly aware that if they were caught breaking protocol he'd be the one that would have to answer for it ordered Indran to park the vehicle next to the river instead of under the awning. The four men then sprinted across two meters between the vehicle and the resort. For about an hour, as the rain beat down, they just rested at the porch, each taking turns to stand guard. Lieutenant Daryl tried a couple of times to report back to the rest of the unit at first, but all he managed to get on every channel was static. He thought he'd heard something at one point through the static, but Indran said that it sounded too much like an old woman though, repeating, Sawadikab, Sawadikab, Towards the end of the hour, the rain started to subside, while Dominic, the more timid of the two sergeants, was on guard. Suddenly, Max woke and stood up, seemingly in a trance of some kind. Max then started to walk past the resort's reception area, out towards the back, Dominic tried to call out to him, Max didn't respond. So he quickly woke Lieutenant Daryl and Indra up and ran after Max. Dominic managed to catch up to his fellow sergeant and pulled Max back just before the entranced soldier could walk off a cliff. Indran and Dominic slapped Max, splashed water into his face, eventually waking him from his unnatural stupor. Lefton and Daryl, however, just stood by, kept asking what was going on. Max explained to them that he heard an old woman calling out to him. She was... Speaking in Thai, but he instinctively knew that she was saying, Come here. Come here. He tried to resist her, but couldn't. Dominic turned to Lieutenant Darrow, and with more conviction than Indran had ever seen in him, said that they needed to rejoin the rest of the unit immediately. The officer hummed and hawed, but eventually relented. Indran lights another cigarette and takes a sip of his coffee. I knew Dominic too, and mentioned that this explains why he seemed so different during the reserve cycle that followed this one. Indran says that it wasn't just this incident. that would have been bad enough he says that the following evening something else happened the party was at a different area further down that same river their recce had gone off without a hitch and they were going to head back to rejoin the rest of the unit they all got back into the vehicle and headed back in the direction that they'd come from with Lieutenant Darrow guiding Indran according to their map. Soon, sunlight started to fade and the drive, once again, seemed to go on for longer than Indran thought it should have. The officers started to complain, started to blame Indran for their lengthy journey. Indran, as calmly as he could, pointed out that he was very precisely following his instructions. And besides, Endron added, they had driven along the river to get there, and they were driving back along it to return to the unit. There was no way they were lost. Lieutenant Daryl grumbled some more, and said that he wanted to stop for a rest. Andron advised against it, but Daryl insisted So he said that after he made a turn up ahead, he'd stop the vehicle. Indran tells me that that was probably the biggest mistake he could have made. After the turn and across the river was a small, seemingly empty village. The lieutenant didn't pay it any mind getting out and relieving himself against the tree. But Indran and the two sergeants, without saying a word to each other, each put on their berets and said a silent prayer to their own gods. As the officer was buttoning up his trousers, out from the shadows of the village came an old woman. She didn't say anything. But Indran Dominic and Max all realized that they knew what she sounded like. Max more so than the other two. The sergeant started shaking uncontrollably and without taking his eyes off the old woman, climbed back into the vehicle. Dominic followed him and again insisted that we get moving left in and wanted to argue but saw the look on Max's face almost immediately Andron and him scrambled back into the vehicle see it took them 30 minutes earlier to get to their recce area but it took them 3 hours to get back to the unit and through that whole ride Nathan and Daryl kept looking back over his shoulder. He seemed annoyed at first. As the ride continued, he started to grow quieter and quieter. Later on, Indran would overhear him telling another officer that something kept pulling his uniform, as if trying to yank him out of a vehicle. He thought it was the sergeants at first, but when he saw that Indran had tightly sealed the canopy of the 1.5 tonner, he realized that it was something else, entirely. The commanding officer yelled at Daryl when they returned. He said that he sent out two land rovers to look for the party. The lieutenant tried to explain that they had followed the river back and that something wasn't right. The CO didn't believe him at first, and said that the Land Rovers had followed the river in the search, so there's no way they could have missed them. When Indran and the sergeants chimed in and backed the officer up, the CO eyed all four men for a moment, before calmly telling them to go grab their dinner and turn in. For the rest of the night The four of them never went out For another recce For the rest of the exercise Indran tells me That while Max had changed since then He wasn't crippled By what had happened He pauses for a moment To light another cigarette I ask him about Daryl He smiles no one's seen him since we finished with service, he says. He tells me that he's heard rumors about him. Had a mental breakdown. His elderly parents look after him now. Keeps claiming something is coming for him. But those are just rumors, he tells me. I nod and lit my own cigarette without a word. The first thing that strikes me about Derek is how laid back he is. Wearing a loose-fitting singlet, Bermuda shorts and flip-flops, he's already sipping on a tea alia when I arrive at the coffee shop in Jurong. It's around 10 on a Tuesday morning, so after I order a copy, from the drink stall auntie, I ask him if he has anywhere else he needs to be soon. He gives me an easy smile and shakes his head lazily, rubbing the sparse hints of a beard along his jawline. He tells me that today, like most of his days now, is free and easy. Derek had emailed me some details about his story. So the stark contrast between whom he'd been during that experience and who he is now is a bit of a shock. Ten years ago, Derek was working in the banking industry. His career on the rise thanks to his ability to not just cope but thrive in that incredibly stressful environment. He worked off his stress with drinks and women, but what helped him cope the most was illegally racing his souped-up sports car. He tells me that there have been more than a few crackdowns over the years, but back then, if you had enough cash, knew the right people, and were determined enough, you could still find these late-night races. Scattered across the island. One such spot for these races was Mundai Road, leading up to and past the crematorium and columbarium. He straightens up slightly when he talks about this area. It clearly had an effect on him, though not necessarily one of terror. His tone it's a little more somber than before as he says that it was one thing for him to be risking his life in pursuit of an adrenaline high but what he regrets the most from that time was racing so close to such a solemn and hallowed place still he tells me that it was on that stretch where he went from who he was to who he is now I take that as my cue pull out my recorder and ask him to start from the beginning Derek and his buddy Brandon would always check out the stretch they'd be racing down preferably a day before the race itself getting a feel of the area at a leisurely pace after all meant fewer surprises in the heat of the competition. Driving up and down Mandai Road that sunny Saturday afternoon, two things occurred to Derek. The first was that there were no sudden twists or turns, which meant that all the races would be on relatively equal footing. Good, he thought, grinning to himself. When... No one had an advantage when there weren't any odds-on favourites to win. That only meant that a competition would be a lot fiercer. And that was the kind of race that Derek loved the most. The other thing that occurred to him, however, was how many hearses he'd passed by. He knew the crematorium and columbarium were along this road, but it still surprised him. A nagging sense of discomfort gnawed at the back of his mind, but he brushed it off, choosing instead to focus on the excitement of the race ahead and the thrill of what he felt was his inevitable win. The races all gathered the following night, by 2am. The race itself began soon after, starting near Sumbawang Road and ending just before Woodlands Road. Six cars navigated the empty stretch, the persistent buzzing of their engines, the only sounds that filled the air. Of the six, Derek's narrowly came in second, despite putting up what he describes as a hell of a fight. Sheepishly, he confesses that he didn't take it well he yelled at the winner and accused him of cheating he kicked some of the other cars and even spat at their drivers eventually though Brandon managed to pull him away and the pair drove back down towards a section of the road with a clear view of Upper Salita Reservoir to cool off there they popped open the boot of Brandon's car and fished out a couple of bottles of beer. Sitting on the roadside barrier, Derek let off a tirade of curses and swears at no one in particular, punctuating his tantrum by flinging his empty bottle into the reservoir's otherwise still waters. Spinning back around, he let off a mirthless laugh, but was stopped short. By the sudden and weirdly silent appearance of a mostly emptied chartered bus which was parked right beside their cars the fluorescent lights in the vehicle had an unearthly glow and flickered unevenly its driver an elderly Chinese man eyed Derek and Brandon silently for a while His expression was oddly blank. Derek, his rage fueled further by the booze, yelled at the man to mind his own business. Unlike Derek, however, Brandon immediately realized that there was something not quite right about this whole situation. He tried to calm Derek down but Derek just kept spewing obscenities until the man slowly deliberately and very calmly alighted the bus at that point Derek tells me even he began to grasp the strangeness of it all quieting down but still eager for a fight Derek glared at the man who continued to stare right back silently. Derek wasn't sure if it was a trick of the light or just his imagination, but he could have sworn the man was engulfed in a glow similar to that of the fluorescent lights in his bus. Finally, the man spoke. Why are you here? He said, Plainly, Before Derek or Brandon could respond He continued It's very late Don't stay here He paused for a second Then added With a slight smile and an ominous gleam in his eye You're disturbing People The man's tone was monotonous nothing particularly threatening about it. Yet at that moment, all Derek and Brendan wanted to do was to jump into their cars and drive away as quickly as possible. The man paused for just a little while longer and turned and silently boarded the bus again. The vehicle hissed rumbled and slowly headed down Mandai Road, back in the direction of the crematorium and columbarium. Derek and Brandon turned to each other. They didn't say anything. They didn't have to. Their confused and terrified expressions said it all. But then, something a sensation or a feeling too strong to ignore compelled both of them to turn their attention back towards the bus it still seemed empty then its lights flickered again suddenly was filled with people all staring silently out the rear window at Derek and Brandon. The pair scrambled into their cars and sped back towards where the other races were. As they approached Woodlands Road, however, Derek saw the flashing red and blue lights of police cars up ahead and panicked. He certainly didn't want to head back in the direction of the ghostly presence, but the very immediate threat of arrest frightened him a whole lot more. He executed a quick three-point turn and raced back the way he came. Soon, the lights of the police cars disappeared in his rear-view mirror. But that didn't put him at ease, and it certainly didn't slow him down. Lost in the haze of his frenzied hysteria, it almost seemed like nothing could get him to take his foot off the gas. But then he lost control of his car. I crashed into this massive tree, Derek says. His demeanor remains as relaxed as before, but he sounds almost like he's chastising himself. He continues, and I bet you can guess where that tree was, can't you? Right in front of the crematorium and columbarium, I venture. He smiles that easy smile and clicks a finger gun in my direction. After he was discharged from the hospital, he went through a whole legal battle that he says, without a hint of sarcasm, thankfully ended with him losing only his entire career. He took a couple of odd jobs after, but he wasn't too worried. He still had a decent chunk of change stashed away from his time in banking. And of course, he stopped racing altogether. I ask whether it had more to do with the accident or with the apparition he saw. He says that some part of him knew he was done racing that afternoon when he was checking out the road. When that nagging discomfort gnawed at the back of his mind, something inside of him, a voice in his head, was trying to tell him that he shouldn't be there. At first, I thought it meant that I shouldn't have been at Mandai Road specifically, he says with a chuckle. What I think it actually was, though, was a warning that I needed to get out of that whole place in my life. He takes a sudden shift in our conversation and asks if I want another drink. I shrug and tell him that I wouldn't mind another kopi and as I'm about to call the drink stall Auntie Ova, he stops me, stands up and offers to order it for me instead. Before he heads over to the stall, however, he turns to me and says, I didn't listen to that voice in my head, that warning. He pauses, then adds as he limps away. But I found another way to get its message across. Neil shakes my hand firmly and takes a seat across from me at the East Coast Lagoon food village. The same place we'd met for the first time only little over a year ago. Just like back then, he still makes it a point to go for a run early every morning along East Coast Park. And he still rewards himself with a hearty serving of Prata after. How's the ghost story collection? he asks nodding towards my bag where I keep my recorder I chuckle and tell him that there's still plenty more out there but I've amassed a decent collection so far words got around, and more people are coming forward with their stories I say he smiles pleasantly so I've heard he says waving the drink stall uncle over We've kept in contact since he last shared a couple of stories with me. Stories not just about his encounters with the supernatural, but his father's and his grandfather's encounters too. Deeply personal stories that he regards as important parts of his family's history. And today, he has two more for me. Where'd these ones come from? I ask. He's about to answer when the drink-stall uncle comes by. I order a tea for Neil and a copio for myself. Still need the strong stuff this early in the day, huh? He says with a smirk as the uncle heads back to his stall. I give him a friendly shrug then fish out my recorder. So, I say switching the recorder on and placing it on the table. About these two new stories you wanted to share. Ah, yes, Neil says, dipping a piece of prata into a saucer of fish curry. Well, remember how I told you that my dad had a few more accounts from the 70s after my late uncle Terence moved out of that Frankel Avenue place? I nod. well, he says, Dad didn't really want me sharing them last time. They're about Terrence, so he felt like they weren't his to share, you know? But he's heard more and more of his friends mention you. The collector of ghost stories. That's what they're calling you now, by the way. I can't begin to imagine what my reaction must look like. Neil starts laughing. Don't worry, <laughs> it's a good thing. He says People trust you with their stories now Which is why My dad finally changed his mind That's great I say I'll try As always To be as respectful as I can Now If you're ready Perhaps You can Neil interrupts me With a raised hand And that pleasant smile again I know I know He says with a chuckle Perhaps I can start from the beginning. Neil's uncle Terence had signed up with the police force around the mid seventies. Back then, the training academy was located around Bookett Brown Cemetery, near Onret Road, an area famous for its unexplained sightings. Terence, however, already had quite a bit of experience with the supernatural. So while his fellow cadets traded stories, he was content with focusing on his training. Unfortunately for Terence, one of the cadets who was fascinated with these stories was Peter, the guy who slept on the top bunk of his bed. Peter was always eager to please the other cadets. He helped them to clean up their quarters while everyone else lazed around. When a couple of the other cadets jokingly asked him to polish their shoes, he eagerly jumped at the chance. He'd even covered for a few of them when they snuck out one night, then happily faced disciplinary action while everyone else got away scot-free. So, when some of the other cadets dared Peter to spend the night in the sole toilet shared by the barracks in the neighbouring building. Of course, his immediate response was, I'll do it. This toilet, located squarely between the two barracks, was supposedly haunted. Though, no one could agree on what the legend behind it was. Some said a cadet killed himself there. Others claim that's where demonic rituals were conducted. Terence had a feeling that all of these rumours were just that, rumours. But he also had an uneasy feeling about that toilet. He pulled Peter aside and told him that he didn't have to do this. Peter, however, said that he was fine. I'm not scared, Peter told Terence confidently. Terence tried to tell him that that was not the point, but Peter was already swept up in the cheers and whoops of his fellow cadets. That night, Peter took his pillow, blanket, and a towel and slept on the toilet floor with the door shut. The next morning, he returned to the barracks, a triumphant hero, bathing in the disingenuous praise of his fellow cadets. As happy as Peter felt, though, Terence could tell something wasn't right. All that day he kept a closer watch on Peter. but nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary. He still let the other cadets take advantage of him. He still tried too hard to fit in. He still sadly, was an outsider without even realizing it. that night. However, at around 3am, Terence was awoken by the bunk bed shaking. Slightly at first, then furiously. Confused, but mostly just sleepy and annoyed, Terence mumbled something along the lines of Stop it, I'm gonna slap you. Then tried to get back to sleep. But then Peter started to whimper. And that caught Terence's attention because it wasn't sadness that he heard in those silent cries it was terror Terence climbed out of his bed and stood up Peter was sitting at the foot of the top bunk his eyes locked on the window at the other end Terence followed his line of sight at first he couldn't see anything The forested areas surrounding the barracks bathe in pitch-black darkness. But then, something flew by the window. It moved too quickly, but Terence knew what he saw. Still, he kept his eyes locked on the window. He had to be absolutely sure. And then, there it was again. A head, with its lips parted, revealing razor-sharp fangs. Immediately and as quietly as he could, Terence pulled Peter off the top bunk, dragged him to the center of the room, and sat by him. Terence wasn't sure what would happen if the head flew in and attacked them. He didn't know what he could do all he knew was that he had to protect Peter. As the night went on, a couple of the other cadets woke up, one by one. They were all unsure what had woken them, but when they saw Terence sitting in the middle of the room and how badly Peter was trembling beside him, they knew they had to join them too. By morning, more than half the room was sitting around Peter, watching out for him. At breakfast, Terence told the rest of them what he had seen, and after lunch, Terence, together with a few of the other cadets, including some of the ones who dared Peter to sleep in the toilet in the first place, approached their officer. They explained what had happened and asked for help. The officer didn't even flinch or raise an eyebrow. Instead, he simply told them that he'd bring in someone that night. And that the matter would be resolved by the time they were done with dinner. Nothing happened that night when it was time for lights out, Neil tells me. He says that his uncle Terence took the top bunk instead with Peter at the bottom while two other cadets slept by either side of the bed. They didn't see who it was the officer had brought in and honestly, they didn't care. All that mattered was that no one saw the flying head ever again and everyone treated Peter better after. Which was good, Neil says. His lips curling up into a knowing smile. Because they needed everyone working together to deal with their next encounter with the supernatural. Neil orders the next round of drinks. Another tea for himself, and another copio for me after sharing his last story about his late uncle Terence's time at the old police academy down on Onred Road, he asks if we could take a short break. I love these stories, but they can have a bit of an emotional toll sometimes, you know, he says, looking just a little warier, but still smiling pleasantly. As our drinks arrive, he switches the topic and asks if I've heard the rumours circulating around about me. Rumours? I respond, perplexed. He laughs and says, I told you, you're getting quite the reputation, but no one really knows much about you. You're just the collector of ghost stories. I hesitantly ask what sort of rumours he's heard. He tells me that more than a few people think... I'm either a ghost myself or an entity that's not of this world. Some people think you're just collecting these to make listicles, Neil says with a shrug. I ask him what listicles are, but he only responds with an even heartier laugh. Seemingly recovered from the toll of his last story, Neil says that he's ready to talk about Terence's other experience at On Red Road. So, I switched the recorder back on and asked him to start from the beginning. A month had passed since a ghostly apparition had terrorized Terence's bunkmate, Peter. In that time, Terence and his fellow cadets had started to focus, mostly, on their training again. Everyone in those quarters had grown closer their bonds only strengthened by their brush with the supernatural. They even began to have a nightly routine to build up their camaraderie. A couple of the cadets had snuck decks of playing cards into camp. After lights out, one of them would start a game of poker or blackjack, while another would challenge his friends to tidy. They had been warned that by the officers a couple of times, of course, especially when they’d get so engrossed in their games that they started hooting and howling, either in joy or defeat. But they never got into any serious trouble, especially since word had spread among the officers about what had happened to them. One night, however, while a couple of games were going on, Terence and the rest of their cadets, were shocked out of their revelry by a booming yell. Terence stepped out of their quarters into the barracks corridor. He looked down to see a lone officer in his late 40s, standing in the freshly cut grassy field below, staring up at him. His uniform was pristine, almost unnaturally so. The only thing that seemed to break this illusion, was that it stretched slightly over the older man's prominent paunch. Terence wanted to laugh at the officer's sizable gut, but stopped himself when he caught the look in the man's eyes. It wasn't just mean. It was malicious. Even evil, Neil tells me. The officer yelled out that it was well past the lights out. Terence tried to tell him that he understood, and they were all sorry, but the officer didn't seem interested in hearing him out. Instead, he started storming purposefully up the stairs of the barracks towards their quarters. Maybe it's because Terence couldn't hear another sound aside from the men's fast-approaching footsteps. Not even the usually noisy crickets in the surrounding forests or the leaves of the trees rustling in the wind. Maybe it was just his imagination, but he could have sworn that every step the officer took, every clack of his shoes against the stairs' dull concrete, sounded as loud as thunder. Terence rushed back into their quarters. Something told him that he needed to not just close their door, but lock it. The other cadets asked him which officer it was, but Terence just shook his head. It wasn't any officer he'd seen before? And he wasn't even sure if it was human. And as soon as he locked the door, he heard someone or something bang against it. Unless he happened to be deceptively stronger than he seemed the bang was louder and more forceful than anyone in the officer's physical state could manage. Whatever was outside their door demanded that they open up. Another bang even louder than before. Some of the cadets tried to apologize, but they were only met with a guttural, almost beastly growling and more banging against the door. The thing that sounded like the officer demanded that they open up again, but its voice started to distort, almost like whatever it was had stopped trying to disguise its true nature. Terence fearful that it would soon power its way in, braced himself against the door. Immediately, his bunkmate Peter leapt up and joined him, followed by more and more of the cadets. While some pushed back against the assault at the door, others cried out the windows for help. After what felt like hours to Terence, lights in the neighbouring buildings began to flip on. Over the creature's distorted growls, the cadets heard their officers, the ones whose voices they did recognize, rushing towards their barracks. The banging started to die down, and soon, whatever had been trying to get in had gone. But still, Terence, Peter, and the other cadets continued to brace themselves against the door. They didn't let up. Not until they heard the familiar voice of their commanding officer yell, Bloody hell, what's going on here? Neil tells me that even though Terence described the man perfectly to his officers, no one could identify who the would-be assailant was. I asked Neil if his officer called in the same person who had helped them deal with their previous encounter. They did, he says. But by that point, everyone figured it was safer to just move the cadets out to another barrack. And as far as Terence could tell, no more cadets occupied those quarters for the rest of his time at the academy. Neil tells me that he has even more stories of the supernatural from his family, says that those stories will have to wait. Give Dad time to get used to sharing these, he says. The fact that he's told you this many already is pretty amazing. I tell Neil that it's fine and that I'm grateful for everything his family has shared so far. He stands up and shakes my hand firmly. It's good to see you, he says. Hopefully we won't have to wait another year to meet up again. I agree. Then add just a slight smirk that the next time we catch up, you better tell me what a listicle is. If you want to discover more of Southeast Asia's other side, subscribe now and follow us on social media at WeRHuntu. You can also buy official merchandise on Redbubble and be one of our supporters on Patreon. Ghost Maps is recorded on Audio-Technica Mics.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.